following podcast contains information and opinions that are solely the views of the hosts and guests and are not intended to represent employers, organizations, or other entities with which the participants may be affiliated or associated. We hope you enjoy Military Historians or People Too. Amy, yes. how are things out there in Ames? They are fine. Kids are back in school. I'm on leave this semester. So, you know, what can I say? We had something in here that says we can't talk to people who are on leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. No. yeah. We don't get we don't get leaves here. Um, yeah. Our provost did away with them. So we're very envious. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. We're not allowed to call it a sabbatical. And I actually probably am not allowed to call it a leave either. Yeah, we call it God... edu- what do, educational leave. Educational right? leave is what we call it. Yeah, Here is yeah. FPDA, faculty, um, faculty professional, professional development. development, something. Yeah. Anyway, because, you know, God forbid the lazy professors just yeah. sit around and kick up our feet for a semester. Yeah. 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 What are we going to do? What are yeah. we going to do? Um, uh, Brian, before we get started, let me do my shout outs real quick. Yeah, go for it. Uh, University Press of Kansas, as always, hey to everybody out there at the ranch in Lawrence. Um, I think we should shout out to, to Debbie Gershinowitz and the nice folks at Chapel Hill yeah. as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And um, so, so hey, to, hey to them. Thanks for your support. Uh, Philip Shackelford, modern Scott, man, he's just banging them out. He is. Uh, yeah. The dude's just, just, uh, really become a machine with this stuff and he's doing a great job. And, uh, Adele Ali's, uh, he's renamed his podcast podcast. Now it's called behind, behind the news or behind the his, history behind the news. Sorry. And, uh, which is kind of a more accurate description of what, what he's been doing, but, and what else? Yeah, I've got two quick shout outs. Um, one, I did a, a conference, a military justice conference at the uh, Free University in Berlin a couple weeks ago. And uh, just wanted to thank uh, Uwe's Matthias Zachmann and his uh, his staff at the uh, FU Japanese Institute, uh, Institute for Japanese History. Uh, it was a really good conference and I appreciated their hospitality. And more importantly, perhaps, um, I had the best barbecue I've ever had in my life uh, last weekend in Valdosta, Georgia. Oh, you told me about yeah, this. So, sure. Uh, Shout out to Woodstack Barbecue. I consider myself a connoisseur. The burnt ends were the best thing I've ever had on a barbecue plate. So uh, if you are down in the Valdosta, Georgia area, stop at Woodstack Barbecue. That's quite the endorsement, man. Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. There's no way around it. And a student of mine from Valdosta said that's not actually the best barbecue in Valdosta. (laughs) So so we'll go. Amy, you got any shout outs? Uh, right now, Cyclone Contracting is doing a great job with my bathroom. <laughs> All right. Good deal. All hey, right. It's a, uh, small victories. Small yeah. victories. Take them. It's, a shower that works for the first time in eight years. I'm going to be really, really excited. <laughs> it's Hey, it's hard to get people to do uh, manual labor these days. So we appreciate the people who do it. Yes, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. All right, man. Well, Introduce. All right. So today we're talking to Amy uh, Ruttenberg. Um, I met Amy uh, in person for the first time at the SMH this year. And uh, as we were 
having a drink, I realized, made a connection that I've known her husband for a few years and that I've heard about her for years, but never actually uh, had had crossed paths with her. So it's a pleasure to have Amy on. Um, Amy is Associate Professor of History at Iowa State University, where she serves as the coordinator and co-coordinator of the Secondary Social Studies Education Program. And I think that coordinator, co-coordinator is because it's a year on, year off kind of thing, right? Yep. Um, Amy held the rank of assistant professor in the Department of History at Appalachian State University before making the move to Iowa. Uh, But she started her teaching career with a five-year stint at Ardsley High School in Ardsley, New York. Um, She earned her B.A. Yeah, I know. She's she's done it. Uh, She earned her B.A. from Tufts University and Ed M. at Harvard University and a Ph.D. from the University of Maryland College Park. Amy is the author of Rough Draft, Cold War Military Manpower Policy and the Origins of Vietnam-Era Draft Resistance, uh, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2019. And she's currently writing another manuscript titled In the Service of Peace, Peace Activism and Military Service in Post-Vietnam War America. Her articles have appeared in Cold War History, the Journal of African-American History, The Atlantic, and The New York Times. And she's contributed essays uh, to numerous edited volumes. Amy's work has been funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the United States Army Military History Institute, the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation, and the Harry S. Truman Library and Museum, just to name a few. She has given academic papers all over the country, and she also speaks to educators on subjects like like teaching LGBTQIA histories and intersectional feminisms. Amy is a trustee of the Society for Military History, and she recently took the post of K-12 educator at the Center for Military, War, and Society Studies Teaching Military History website. And uh, we discussed that with Beth Bailey when he had her on, or when we had her on, first-rate um, project. Um, so welcome, Amy. Great to have Thank you here. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Well, we uh, we start simple. You know, our podcast requires no prep. We just want to know who you are. <laughs> Fair enough. We, we want to know who you are. So uh, where are you from? What did your parents do? How did you get into history? How did you decide that uh, you were going to get a PhD? And for you in particular, what made you decide that after five years in the uh, high school classroom that you were going to go back and get the PhD? I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, lower Marion area, in some ways, very typical sort of privileged childhood. My dad was a doctor. My mom had a master's in library science, hated libraries. She stayed home with us and then eventually went back for a master's in social work, which she did after my brothers and I had left the nest. And I have always been interested in history. I think it came from a couple of different places. Um, you know, my dad would come home late. He worked a lot and, you know, he would stay up and relax and watch whatever was on TV and I'd go down and join him. And I ended up watching some things I probably shouldn't have at a young age. I'm trying to remember if it was like Shaka Zulu or Zulu, which movie it was, but there <laughs> I was bet a it lot was of Zulu. Blood. I bet it was Zulu. <laughs> probably in the 80s. And, uh, you know, I remember sitting there just sort of keeping my dad company, but also just watching these movies that one, but, you know, Civil War stuff and just wondering what the hell drove these people to walk in lines against each other. I mean, not so much in Sulu. That was the British side. But, you know, they're walking into gunfire and it made no sense at all to me, like none. And so that was a question that I think has been there in my head since forever. And, you know, my dad was a little bit of a buff. And so we went on trips to Baltimore and toward ships and, you know, did the historical stuff as kids. But my childhood, I think it was 
chaotic would be the best way to describe it. There were just a series of things that happened in my family life. And my way of coping was to flee (laughs) to my bedroom and read. I I developed a love of reading for my grandmother. And honestly, I read a lot of really, really terrible, horrible, like historical fiction that was um, directed at like young adult girls. Like I remember this series of books that each one was the name of a woman and like they all took place at various like historical events you know the San Francisco earthquake the Johnstown flood I don't know the the war of 1812 in New Orleans like they were all over the place and it was always like in that setting and this young woman had to choose between two men I mean they must have been so horrible and racist and wrong (laughs) (laughs) that was what I you know grew up on and so I kind of always knew I was interested in history and I always wanted to be a teacher probably because as as we'll talk no one uh, who knows me well I was a pretty bossy kid and so (laughs) somewhere in there that combination of really being interested in history and sort of wanting to be a little bit in control (laughs) led to this desire to be a teacher and so when I went off to college Um, I majored in history and it was there that I discovered mid nineties, you know, women's history. It was just women's history really at the time and African-American history. And like the idea that I I think I got into the interest in history really from an identity perspective in that, you know, who would I have been if I had been in any of these places, right? That's what those those terrible, horrible books um, sort of, you know, spurred and made you think about, but these were real fields thinking about who were people who weren't the politicians and who weren't the people in power and what was happening. And, you know, this is this that was my first sort of introduction to to what it meant to be a historian and how you dig into this stuff. And so I was really lucky to have some amazing professors at Tufts who pushed me in directions that I didn't necessarily expect, especially into the archives. I had one professor, Gerald Gill, who uh, focused on African-American history, um, who pushed me to write a senior seminar paper on Tufts University's involvement in school desegregation in Boston. Mm -hmm. And he had a fellowship at the Schomburg Center that year, and he actually pulled some documents for me. And I was able to get into the archives at the university and some other places and, and pull something together. And he eventually helped me publish that paper in the Journal of African American History. And that was a paper I wrote as an undergrad. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. wow. Um, so that was, I mean, it, it, it was over years. He helped me uh, when I, jumping ahead, when I decided to go back to grad school, I contacted him and, and uh, Professor Virginia Drackman also at Tufts to write recommendations. Not only did they remember me, but um, Professor Gill ended up, it, it happened to coincide with the 50th anniversary of Brown v. Board. So he ended up like, pushing me to apply to a conference at Columbia and then helping get that paper published, um, which was awesome. So I had these things on my CV as I was applying to graduate school, which was, you know, amazing. And as an undergrad, I did my uh, dissert, my um, dissertation, my undergrad, hardly. (laughs) Another overachiever. Yeah, totally. No, uh, undergrad honors thesis on women in the military, in the U.S. military during World War II, because I was interested in that question of who serves and why and what were the women up to. And um, this was right. I found Lisa Meyer's book, Creating G.I. Jane, had come out like, mm-hmm. that year. And so it's just a tremendous experience. Um, but to be honest, I did not think I was smart enough to do a PhD. 
Um, so I went welcome, on. Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. So I went yeah, on, got a master's in education because that's where the political winds were blowing at the time. It seemed like in Massachusetts, you would have to have a master's degree to be a teacher. Okay. Um, <laughs> my how things have changed. Um, and, <laughs> and then I went on to teach uh, high school for five years which was really in many ways, just a tremendous experience. It was so formative. Um, okay. So a couple of questions. Yeah, go for it. First, if you got into Tufts out of high school, you clearly had options. So why did you decide that you were going to go to Tufts? I fell in love with it and I had the financial ability to do so. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, that's, I had never heard of it. And then a friend of mine was looking at it. So it just sort of added it to the list of schools to look at in you, the New England You'd area. never heard of Jumbo the Elephant? I, I'd heard of Jumbo the Elephant. <laughs> I had not heard of Tufts University. And let me tell you, Jumbo was the first of many uh, interesting mascots I've had over the years. But yes, um, it does. it does take some time for a particularly a young woman to be like, yes, I'm a Jumbo. <laughs> just you know so you you go to tufts you go to harvard so how does your path in end up in new york and not teaching in massachusetts um i might have followed a boy oh okay yeah All right. but i i did it smart and though the boy you know was out of the picture after a couple of years. I'm really glad I was where I was. I had the opportunity to live in Manhattan for a couple of years, which while I would never want to stay there, I'm really glad I had that opportunity for a while. I, I was in a good place for me at the time. And so that that was really good. And my family, you know, they're from Philadelphia, so New York was closer. Yeah. Um, you know, it made sense at the time. <laughs> so our paths almost, uh, I think. So you, I'm going to assume you are born around 77. Yep. Yeah. So you and I, I think, are on the exact same trajectory. Um, yep. And I so when I was deciding where to get my Ph.D., I had, of course, gotten turned down to a lot of the places I really wanted to go uh, or from. And uh, I had narrowed it down to I was going to go to Ohio State or Maryland. And I ended up going to Ohio State. But had I gone to Maryland, I would have been with your husband, uh, Melissa, all, you know, Kravitz, uh, the whole gang there. So you and I might have been besties had things just. Oh, uh, wow been a little a little bit different yeah my whole world was <laughs> historians of germany <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> we totally would have been friends <laughs> yeah very very small world but um so what was what was teaching high school like oh gosh um you know what i tell my students who are about to be teachers that the first year of teaching is my personal definition of hell it is the hardest thing i've ever done with the possible exception of parenthood but parenthood is spread out over time. Whereas this first year of teaching is just this constant hamster wheel that you cannot get off of. And I've done all the things, you know, I've taken comps, I've written a book, like I've done hard things, but teaching was so much harder. On the other hand, it was never, ever boring, right? There's a problem to be solved every day. The students yeah. are awesome. It was so much fun to interact with these students um, and to you know, we've all had that experience at the college level as well, where like you teach something that people didn't know and it blows their minds and it just changes their perspectives. And I don't know that I had that experience, you know, that that I changed anyone's life perspectives as a as a secondary teacher. But in the moment, day to day, it felt like it. And that that was really amazing. Um, 
Also, you know, there's really something special when a bunch of ninth graders come back to the classroom, you know, in the spring after a peep eating contest during lunch, you know, (laughs) come in right at the period after lunch, like vibrating with like sugar (laughs) energy and hormones and God knows what else. And like, Brian, maybe that's what I need to do in the afternoon. (laughs) Yeah. Go teach. Get us up. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you can harness it. um, Some peeps. Yeah. Get to it. I don't, I don't know how many they, they, they ate, but it was definitely. So once you go back and you are at Maryland working on the PhD, what was it about Vietnam that, that made you decide that's what you were going to focus on? Oh, sure. Well, that, that was sort of a process. Um, I will say that I, as much as I love teaching, I couldn't, I didn't, I didn't foresee doing it for another 40 years. I would have burned yeah. out. And so I did an NEH summer seminar that was run by uh, Marla Miller and Bruce Laurie out of UMass. It was one of these for teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was there that I met some actual grad students and realized, oh, they're people, right? Grad students yeah. are people too. I could do a PhD. So <laughs> I went about trying that. It was it was always supposed to be like an experiment to see if I could do it. If it didn't work out, I'd go back to teaching high school and that would be fine. I just sort of by that point, I was single and had no kids and no responsibilities to anybody but myself. So if I was going to do it, that was the moment to do it. Um, in terms of how I ended up at Maryland, they accepted me. Uh, the yeah. first year I applied, mm-hmm. I got in nowhere because I didn't know what I was doing. The application for a PhD in history is very different than an undergrad or a master's in education application. And I did not really understand that. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, I, I'm so glad you said that because we, we've, Throughout many many of these episodes, these interviews we've done, you know, Brian, and our experience, I think, to a degree as well. It's just how many of us, you know, we went because that's where we got in. Yeah. Yep. Or that's where we got a fellowship and we didn't get any offers anywhere else. Right. right. Or, or, you know, you know, in other words, the, the, it, it's rare that you have, you know, these people, well, I had like, you know, 16 things on the plate and, and, and all that. It's like, no, you go where you go. Yeah. And honestly, not getting in anywhere was probably the best thing that could have happened to me because I was a little on the fence and then I got rejected and it was like, oh, I actually really do want to do this. I really do want to take my life in a different direction and move and try something else. And that made me, I think, focus more. Sure. And Maryland, you know, it was either Maryland or William and Mary with to work with Lisa Meyer, Mm. which was great. But Maryland offered me more money and was in a you know, close to the archives, it's hard to, it's hard to turn that down. Um, And my brother lived in DC at the time. So I had a connection there. But yeah, I applied to do US history and with a focus on women and gender history, because that is what I was most interested in. I certainly did not consider myself a military historian, but I got pegged as doing women in the military, because that was my undergrad thesis. Like it was, you know, you're, you you get slotted into this space. Um, but I ended up with Robin Muncie as an advisor whose work was on like uh, progressive women and the connections between women progressives and the New Deal. You know, like she she was not the most obvious fit for an advisor. But again, just tremendous luck. I'm so lucky to have had her as an advisor um, because she didn't really know the field and therefore asked really good questions when, yeah. you know, you know, when I, when I needed to bulk out or I needed to explain or I needed to push or why is this important? Almost that not having that background was more beneficial to me in some ways than her having that background. 
But if you know, Vietnam was a to go back to your question, Vietnam was an interest of mine. I think because I saw the way it impacted my parents. I remember okay, yeah. when I was young, you know, single digit age, we went to to DC and the the Vietnam Memorial had just opened and my parents didn't agree on a whole heck of a lot, but like they both wanted to go to this thing and they were both clearly affected by it. And, Interesting. you know, there was that, that collective memory, I think that impacts my, our generation um, in a particular way. Yeah. And so there was interest there. And then I had other, other types of interests that sort of all ended up colliding. I think as anybody knows, when you're trying to come up with a, project or a topic, you know, it, it ends up going in strange directions that you aren't sure what you're doing. So I came into grad school thinking I would continue to look at women in the military um, and really and remain really interested in that topic. But as I was working on just a paper for a class about recruitment during the Korean War for women, I couldn't find anything on men at all, nothing. And I think the reason for that is because there was a draft on. And so everybody just sort of assumed that men ended up in the military because of the draft. Yeah. So there was that piece that sort of, you know, the, 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 the why question that pushed me in one direction, but then, you know, thinking about how other things come together. So I was teaching in New York in this community, just North of New York city on nine 11 and my community lost members. I actually learned about the, the, the attack because the, my colleague in the room next door to me came into my classroom and said, a plane just crashed at the World Trade Center. My wife works in the World Trade Center. I'm going down to Manhattan, you know, and this is like first period and I'm envisioning a, a small aircraft and, you know, went on with my teaching, but I had a prep period next and um, arrived in the library to Xerox something just to see, you know, someone had pulled out a TV and live seeing the second plane hit, you know, so I'm shepherding these, these ninth graders, these 12 and 13 year olds through this day, they have parents who work down in Manhattan. They have no sense of the geography. They don't even get in touch. I mean, it was just like, it was a, a personal attack in a way that, you know, because it was local, I think was different than, than elsewhere. Sure. And yet to my knowledge, no one joined the military. I had one student who even in ninth grade, wanted to be a warrant officer, wanted to fly Marine helicopters. I'm pretty sure, I mean, I know that he did eventually enlist and I'm pretty sure he did what he wanted to do, but that was pre 9-11. I don't think 9-11 changed the plans of anybody. And that sat in my head mm. really differently from the understanding of Pearl Harbor where supposedly everybody rushed to join up and the recruiting stations had to stay open. And so what changed was sort of always sitting in my head too because of that experience. And so it all started to come together as I just started digging um, when I was in grad school. And that's that's really interesting because, you know, as I said, you and I are basically the same age. And when I'm talking to my students about, you know, people feeling in the First World War and Second World War, this kind of obligation to serve, I, I say just what you said. I mean, I wasn't there. I was in South Carolina. But I say, you know, this happened and I was in grad school and nothing about me made me feel like I needed to go join the military. There was never a moment where I was like, I'm I'm going to put grad school on hold and go sign up. And so, yeah, that's a that's a really, um, you know, really good question. Even and, though thousands of others did. Yeah, right. right. People, you know, right. people I mean, did. They did. They did. But yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. And what yeah. I eventually found is that there's, you know, a lot of people who did go and sign up right at, you know, after 9-11. There were a lot of people who did go and sign up right after Pearl Harbor. But actually. The patterns after that are not so different. You yeah, know, not it, a lot of people signed up after the Tet Offensive. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a. Uh... <laughs> but I mean, this is what I ended up arguing in in the first chapter of my book is that World War II is not what we remember it. Given the opportunity to avoid military service, a lot of men are going to do that in any yeah. way they can. Yep. So that you know, it's not a one to one comparison, right? In 1940, there was a draft on. In 1941, there was a draft on. In 2001, there certainly was not, right? Post Vietnam experience is also going to change Americans' viewpoints of military service. There's all kinds of things that change. So I don't want to make too too closer a comparison there, but there are there were similarities. And that is that people didn't necessarily yeah. rush to sign up. Before we uh we get into our next uh, official slated question, mm-hmm. um, if you don't mind, I'd like to, you know, you are you you're married to another historian. And Jeremy uh, Best. Yeah, Jeremy Best. Historian of Jeremy. Uh, Germany. Germany. Yeah. German <laughs> historian of Jeremy. Of Germany. <laughs> <laughs> and and in a lot of you know what you, Freud say about yeah, that. Yes, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> you you broke the cardinal rule that we're all told, which is don't date someone in your own department, don't marry another historian, yeah. because there's no way that you're both gonna ever find jobs. So <laughs> it, it worked out for you. I know that there were bumps along the road just because I, I know your story. But you know, any advice to to grad students sitting out there right now in terms of mm-hmm. that kind of balancing the professional and private of uh of, of what we do. Oh Lord, that's a that's a horrible question because I know, yeah. But you know, you're one of the few people of our generation who no. that's actually worked out for. It worked out for us and it worked out for two reasons. One, we were extraordinarily lucky. And two, because I have the social studies ed thing yeah, happening. Right. And so yeah. the positions I've been hired into have not primarily been because I'm a good historian. There are lots of good historians. There are lots of way better historians out there than me, but I had a certain background and skill set and legitimate desire to work with secondary ed students that made the pool a lot shallower. So the places that gave me any kind of look at all were places where that was part of the position. And then yes, we were able to wrangle a spousal hire and that was luck. Appalachian State would not do really anything for us. We had no choice but to look elsewhere and we were we just happened to arrive at Iowa State at a moment where where they the department had literally just been dinged by an external review that they don't have enough non-American classes and there was no German historian on on oh, on faculty. Yeah. So we were very lucky. I mean, honestly, my my advice at this point is your personal life is more important than your professional life. You know, you fall in love with who you fall in love with and you marry yeah. who you marry, but the academic road is <laughs> definitely gets extra bumpy along the way. Yeah. Unless you're, you know, married to a scientist or an engineer, in which case you're probably golden. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you don't need to work. <laughs> yeah. The, well, the no, little... I, I meant like in a department, like, oh, they'll I'm, like, I'm teasing. yeah, I've, I've, I was literally in, in a meeting where a Dean said, you know, your department's not getting anybody else unless there happens to be a spouse of a of an engineer, you know, like <laughs> someone gets hired elsewhere. So well, at least they're upfront about it. Oh, yeah. it goes. So you maintained this interest though in K through 12 education. I mean, did you mm-hmm. uh or social science education? Did you I, was that like part of your plan all along, or did you just see it as an opportunity? Because no. you had experienced it? How how did how did you how did you maintain that? So I loved teaching and I believe passionately in the importance of secondary education, particularly history and social studies, right? Government 
you know, history. These are really important, undervalued topics. But I also went back to grad school with the expectation that I would go back to high school teaching. I wasn't planning to go into academia necessarily. I was I was there to give it a try and see what happens. But it had always been my plan to be a secondary teacher. And so when I ended up getting a job or seeing a job available that, that allowed me to clearly split these two passions, right? Be a historian based in a history department, um, teach history classes in my specialty and surveys, et cetera, but also teach methods and teaching and go out and observe student teachers. Like to me, that was, again, stars aligning. It was awesome because, you know, I we as historians can do amazing research. But if nobody knows about it and it doesn't filter down anywhere, then what's the point? Right. <laughs> right? right. Like yeah. the reason what we do matters is because other people learn about it and incorporate that into their understanding of the world. And the key to making that happen is the teachers. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a perfect segue. Yeah. Because the question that, that comes to our minds let me be more more honest. It came to Brian's mind when he wrote the questions down. <laughs> he he does this. He does such a good job. Oh, thank you. So, you know, and and I will include myself in this group. A lot of lot of uh, we professors complain about the lack of historical knowledge that students come into our classes with, especially, you know, at the survey level. I mean, I've got mm-hmm. a I've literally got a class of about 150 freshmen. In U.S. history, somehow I drew the short straw, and it's all new freshmen, um, and they're great. They're fine. You know, it's like it's like how is it that you don't know anything? <laughs> Are we complaining too, you know, too much? Is it really not that bad? Or you know, better yet, you know, what what would help us as university professors really understand what the high school, the secondary ed teacher has to wrestle with? the challenges they face and what kind of content they ha- they need to impart versus what they want to impart. Yeah. You know, the dealing with the regimen and standard, you know, of testing and things like that. I think that's still, still a thing that's going on. I don't know. I mean, that's a rambling kind of, I kind of butchered Brian's question there, but uh, I mean, at <laughs> the point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and I guess another way to put it would be, you know, uh, Amy, help me understand. <laughs> So I have theories, none of which I've backed up with rigorous research, but I do think that things have changed over the last 20, 25 years um, for a couple of reasons. One, when I was very first starting out as a baby teacher was just when No Child Left Behind had been passed and the move towards standardized testing. And I think that that leads to two different things happening. One, Social studies is not a tested subject in every state. Like I taught in New York where it was and students had to pass regents exams in both U.S. and world history to graduate. But that privileges the teaching of history as little drips and drabs of knowledge, little twigs of information, as James Lowen calls it. Like you just, you know, the little pieces that we'd never see the trees or the forest because it's multiple choice questions. So that's one place. Other states and really everywhere, to be honest, Uh, History is just totally, once you start testing language arts and math and eventually science and you leave history out and social studies out, nobody cares. It becomes totally siloed off, segmented and de-emphasized. And the amount of history that students have to take has dropped over the years um, in terms of what's required for grad to graduate. I think the second thing, honestly, is the introduction of smartphones. And I don't want to sound like this Luddite, but it's a change in skill set, right? Like 
Yeah. Students aren't agree. readers anymore. Yeah. They have yeah. excellent scanning skills. If you ask a factual question out of a reading, they can zoom right in on the lines that they need and pull that piece of information out. But in terms of being able to read and pull out an argument, that's changed because they're doing it so less. Yeah, that's reading comprehension. Less. That that's what Brian, you know, we've all noticed that that that's what's fallen off. And that's part of the English language arts testing too, because what they're being tested on is pull out this little bit of information from this little passage in this standardized test. It's just different. You know, and so as a result, I think that social studies teachers um, have been able to teach less research. They're not doing research papers in the way they used to. They're not asking students to read. And then there's a cycle too, because now the, the students who are coming up to become teachers don't have these skills themselves. So right. how are they supposed right. to impart yep. them back out to their students? So it's all a big combination. And I, I can answer to like one of the mystery questions that I know historians always argue about is like, why do students talk about books as novels and only write in the present tense? And the yeah. answer is because they only do writing in English language arts class. Yeah. And so if you're yeah. writing about a novel, you talk about it as a novel, but if you've never written about nonfiction, you're still going to call it a novel because you don't know what it is, you know? So I think there are reasons I, you know, I don't have a magic bullet at all, but I'm, I'm trying. I really like my job because I get to try. Yeah. I get to, I get to address well, it directly. I'm glad you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so Absolutely. before we take our faux break, um, do you think, you know, one of the things I hear people say now is that effectively the the BA or the BS or whatever has become what a high school diploma used to be, that in order to get the skills that your average person used to get with a high school education, you now have to go to, to university. And I'm very sympathetic. I, I did my undergrad uh, degree in secondary ed. I've, I taught high school. My wife is still in the, the public school system. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic. But do you think that is, is that accurate? Do you think that we've gotten to a point where the skills that that used to be kind of assumed coming out of high school. Now you get those at a later date. I don't know if I can answer that. I think I'm too siloed still, right? Like I can yeah. talk about social studies education and maybe to some extent English, but I can't talk about math or science or engineering yeah, or yeah. the, yeah. the, you know, what, what the changes there have been. Cause I just don't know. <laughs> well, I can tell you this with 100% certainty. And that is that I cannot do seventh grade math. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of his daughter. <laughs> oh no. So um if I have ever fooled any of you into thinking that I'm smart, just ask my wife how often I can help with, with my daughter's math homework. Oh, I know. And so Jer Jeremy went to a magnet math and science high school. And so he is gonna be our designated math parent. It is not gonna be me. Very good. <laughs> So we take our little break? Yeah, take a little break. Going to get into some dark stuff right now. Um, we're all familiar with the struggles that, that history departments are facing right now. I mean, here at Georgia Southern, we just had an announcement of, you know, like a 6.7% cut this year to be taken right now. Um, we know that kind of stuff is happening all over the country, but you've got real firsthand experience of the kind of draconian cuts that we all, you know, really, really dread. 
you know, our listeners don't know what happened to Iowa State. Uh, you know, you you Google this, Iowa State cuts and things come out, you know, the end of history. There were talks of ending. And the Iowa, department. too. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, it talks about ending the, the history department altogether, right? And kind of merging you into another program. It's one thing to read about these things and you see millions of dollars thrown up there. But, you know, what does it look like on the ground and what does it mean for students interested in history when you face those kinds of, of financial hardships? Yeah, on some level, it's TBD. We are trying as a department really hard to not have this bleed out to our undergrad students. Um, we have no choice but to have it bleed out to our grad students because we're losing our program. It is being sunsetted. So we have a really unique grad program here on rural agricultural, technological, and environmental edu- uh, history. Yeah. So it's very small. I don't have a whole lot to do with it because I don't fall in under any of those umbrellas, really. But it's been we've been working really hard as a program to help train our students um, to do things outside of academia because they understand Truthfully, it may not be ethical to have a small grad program that's not at the top of the heap, but we've been working really hard to make sure that we can place our students into something that they want to do when they finish. Um, And we had just finished a three-year grant with the AHA, but despite the fact that our program doesn't cost much because we don't have a lot of students, um, it is we've been told in no uncertain terms it's gone. So that will bleed out to our undergrads because we've also been told that we have to teach more undergrads, more student credit hours, more butts and seats, um, and we're losing our graders, we're losing our TAs. So at the same time that we have to grow enrollments, we have to change our assessments because you can't teach a 200 person class with essays and no help um, right? and be expected to do all the other things. So, you know, we as a department are working on that. Uh, Honestly, it feels like being kicked in the teeth in a lot of ways. I got into education and I got into history because, like I said, I believe passionately in what I do and in the importance of it. And I think that we can look out in the world and see that in all kinds of ways from, you know, well, we don't need to know the history of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and NATO and all of that or you know, why would it be important what happened, you know, in wars of attrition in the past or, you know, how the Supreme Court uses or misuses history or what actual, you know, any any of it. You look at the place, right? Scientists, engineers, all of the focus on STEM, they can invent wonderful vaccines, but they can't get people to take them, right? Yeah. It's empathy, it's understanding, it's critical analysis, it's all of the things that we do uh, that are so important to our society and to, I think, our future. But that does not fit into the budget model that most universities are using these days. There is no impetus to innovate, to um, cross-list, to co-teach, to do any of the things that, you know, maybe we should be doing to help link those things together. So, yeah, it's really demoralizing. Yeah, I mean, I, I can <laughs> it's imagine. Really demoralizing. Um, I don't know what else to say. Like, and and just... I think uh, you know, you're you're all you're everyone in your department obviously is struggling. But um, you know, what I've seen here is that when people start talking about cuts or there's the chance that someone might lose a job, you know, it becomes in a lot of ways kind of every man for himself. It's like, well, it's not going to get me because I do this. Um, <laughs> so I think it's really you know, it's it's bigger than just oh, you know, they're they're going to get rid of history. It's uh, like you said, there's a bleed down there, and it's going to impact the quality of the education that your students can get. And the really shocking thing was that, you know, 
Iowa is farm. It's farming. And, you know, for that agricultural history program to not be kind of recognized as something really unique and something important to preserving that history of the state, as I read articles about it last night, it was it was really, really disheartening, as you said, to uh, to see that that people just weren't really interested in in doing anything. Yeah, I think I think the piece that emotionally has been hardest. Um, luckily, I think no one's going to lose their job. It's been acknowledged that we cannot make a one third cut. We are a fully tenured department. We have three lecturers and they are their jobs are safe um, for yeah. various reasons. We don't we're not highly adjunctified. So people are not likely to lose their jobs. But the piece that's been really, really demoralizing is the part where the discipline and what we do has been so badly devalued. Um, I was in a meeting where I was told by higher ups that anything history that that we do as a department cannot by definition be innovative because history is not innovative. That's just astounding. We are here as a service to the rest of the university. And that is really demoralizing. You know, (laughs) yes, I, I can teach. I started as a teacher. I'm perfectly happy to teach. And if, you know, I'm sure at some point our, you know, our teaching load is going to go up. But what that means at a research university where everything, every piece of documentation, you know, on down to how you get tenure to how all of it is based on research. And so something's going to have to give. And I don't know what that is, but I think everybody's just sitting here feeling shell-shocked and devalued and trying to figure out, okay, well, then what does that mean for me? You know, what does that mean? Well, we uh, we certainly um, are, are with you. And, um, you know, it's you are probably the, the, you know, the worst of anything I've seen, but you're, you know, misery loves company. Uh, so we're... <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I have a job, right? It's yeah. like there's yeah. so many good historians among us who can't get jobs because the end results of all of this devaluing yeah. right. is right. <laughs> no jobs. Right. So, right. you know, it sucks to be in this. But it's not as bad as it could be. <laughs> yeah, and you and you would think I I always tell my students it's really hard to be successful in a world that you don't understand, and we've seen in our society a real lack of understanding of you know the the purposes of our 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 institutions and what you know people don't understand the the government people don't understand their own history. And you would think that that would be enough to snap people back in and say, okay, we've got to really start making sure that people understand kind of, you know, have this sense of historical awareness. And it's just not there. It's, uh, you know, that that moment hasn't come yet. So I think we can only hope that we cycle back around. Who knows what kind of disaster uh, it takes for people to say, hey, we were wrong about this. But um, definitely um, discouraging, to say the least. It's that question, actually, that's sort of led me to where this next project is going. It's a question of activism and what makes activism successful and how do we generate change in our society and and where do we go with that? Um, And I'm choosing to look at it at that big question of activism through um, peace activists who have worked to support. Well, let's let's talk about that. Yep. Let's let's sure. let's pull out of this nosedive yeah. into oblivion. And... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a sunny day outside. Yeah. Uh, let, yeah. Let's, nice let's, let's 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 talk about your your your, your this project then. Tell and us hey, and hey, on the yeah. bright side, I looked at, you know, like I said, I looked at your Facebook. I'm friends with your husband on Facebook. It looks like Ames is a really wonderful place to live. I have a magnet on my fridge that says Iowa 
it's a black hole you can never escape from, but it's a great black hole to raise children in. <laughs> <laughs> I actually really like games. I think yeah. that what we oh, have I've heard it's a cool co- it's a cool college really town. special. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the people here are special. I I you know, I wish we had a few more restaurants. I wish we had, you know, a few more amenities, but um the town itself is a great place to live. Right. I am interested in taking the story beyond the draft. So manpower beyond the draft, military mm-hmm. manpower beyond the draft in the United States. But I didn't want to just sort of like do part two um, of what I have yeah. done before. So I'm and not like AVF centric, right? Or is that yeah, well, I'm interested in, in sort of taking it to the other side in that rather than looking at the policy that that sort of pushed people into the military or gotcha. not, I'm looking at the activists, the people who are outside of that governmental structure who are. Um, thinking about peace and, uh, and, and government responsibility and all different kinds of things by trying to subvert enlistments. I'm not far enough along in this project to know exactly where it's going yet. Thank you, COVID. I've lost two years of research. Yeah, Thank you. Being married to another academic, we are now leapfrogging over each other because we had been <laughs> staggered in who had to research and who was writing, and now we're in the same place. So <laughs> yeah, there's a lot there. But the thing that connects all of the people I'm looking at, and that's military counseling, attempts at unionization in the 1970s, within unionization within the U.S. military in the 1970s, counter-recruitment through the 70s and 80s. Uh, looking at fights against ROTC and JROTC. The thing that links all of them is that for whatever reason that people end up in the military, when you can talk about the poverty draft, you can talk about push and pull factors. In the end, with an all-volunteer force, everyone has to sign on the dotted line, right? They have to make the decision to do that. And so there's this constellation of activists who've been out there for decades um, trying to subvert that process for various reasons, right? It's really hard. I can't even figure out a name for these folks because some are libertarians and some are pacifists and some are anti-militarists but some are you know they they come from so many different backgrounds that they I mean one of their problems is they don't agree on a lot so yeah. um other than military service bad um and so I'm I'm trying to you know p- scratch at the surface there but what I'm interested in is you know, where what got me here is that I came across the website of a man by the name of Edward Hasbrook, who went to jail in the early 1980s for public resistance um, against the reinstatement of selective service registration. Um, he refused to register. He did it extremely publicly, as did a whole bunch of other men around the country. And there were prosecutions um, and there were 15, uh, 15 indictments. So people went to jail. Um, And it wasn't a coastal thing. It wasn't just a big city thing. Fun fact, the president of the University of Northern Iowa, one of the three regents universities in the state here, was prosecuted for refusing to register. So, I mean, the student body president, like it wasn't under the radar. These guys who have talked to, they believe passionately that the reason why selective service today is basically a shell that could not function is because they went to jail the Reagan administration prosecuted them. It did not make more men register. And so then the choice is either, you know, prosecute millions and millions of men or don't prosecute anybody. And yeah. where I started with is I want to know if they're right. I want to get into, see what I can find in the Reagan, you know, archives in the in the Department of Justice and elsewhere. What's going on? Why is selective service not terribly functional today? 
Um, so I don't, I don't have to worry about them calling me up is what you're saying. Well, I think we've aged out. <laughs> I hope you all, so I, I, I still have my little thing from, uh, yeah. from, from 19, I, it was it, I turned 18 in November of 1984. I got to register for the draft. My birthday is November 6th. So I got to register for the draft and vote on the same day. Oh, wow. It was the most patriotic day of my life. I, I, my maybe, students. maybe not, but um, yeah, I, but I still have my little card for selective service. But I bet you it still shows your address from wherever you were living at that particular point in time. Yeah, That's it probably does. What, one yeah. of the first questions I ask, you know, when I talk about this is how many of the, you know, men in the room have ever changed your address with selective service when you've moved? Yeah. Legally, you're not. supposed to. Yeah. Hmm. That's a really wow. good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I tell my students and they're amazed. Like, I remember going to the post office and filling that paperwork out by hand because, yeah. you know, yeah. I was around before. The, now they just fill it out online. And I guess it is easy to change it online now. But, yeah, I never changed anything. No. In some states, it's tied to voter registration or to or more more uh, likely to um, driver's licenses, but not everywhere. And so one of the problems with selective service right now is like, okay, well, maybe they registered when they were 18, but what happens if they're 22 and suddenly there's a draft? How do you find them? Um, yeah. Especially in states where it's not tied to driver's licenses. So it's, it's, it's a system that exists, but no one's run a test to see if it would actually function if it was needed or who will buy any time. So they need to war game it. They, they do actually. actually. And they, I they, wonder they if they, they ever have. 1982. That's the last time. That was the last time. Yeah. And the congressional commission that was set up the other year to to look at this issue was not funded to do that. So, so they didn't either. So they they don't want, I mean, so they don't want to know. No, no. I mean, they really don't want to know. I mean, it's a relatively cheap agency, right? It yeah. it sounds good. It's theoretically this thing that's supposedly useful in, in an emergency and, you know, it's a, it's a it's a it's a rite of passage for citizenship if you're looking at it through that particular lens. Now, technically, it, when you apply for federal aid, you are they you you do click the box that you are in fact, if you're a man, that you are registered with Selective Service. So I wonder, do you think they actually even check that when they run the aid applications? I don't know if they have checked it. They may at universities, but that question's coming off the FAFSA form. It next is year. okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So. <laughs> Wow. Interesting. And I, I read some stuff last night that you'd written on this. And, you know, you you seem, if I read this correctly, you seem to be of the opinion that, no, women don't need to to register for selective service. That's not where we need to be going in this discussion. My opinion is not quite that. My opinion is that the system we have now of male-only registration is untenable. Okay, um, gotcha. Since women have entered or are eligible to enter all MOSs, they can do anything, they can serve anywhere in the military. This the rationale used by the Supreme Court in 1981 no longer holds, right? In okay. 1981, the Supreme Court said, you know, as long as women are used differently by the military, then we don't need to have them register. Yeah. But that's no longer true. So what we have right now is not is is discriminatory and against whoever you want to decide, right? If you're coming from the the past, the peace activist side is discriminatory against men. If you're coming from uh, different lens. It's discriminatory against women, but it's discriminatory. I'm not convinced. I haven't seen data that tells me that the selective service as an agency and that registration pre-mobilization is serving any purpose whatsoever. God forbid there was something that happened tomorrow and suddenly they got to click this system into place 
they can't find people. They haven't done deferments. So how many people would be deferred? Do they yeah. even have the rules for the deferments? The the as it turns out, uh, my one of my neighbors is on the local selective service board. Um, he hasn't received anything from Washington or the state. It, he, he he's like, I think I'm still on it. I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeez. so the whole system just doesn't Ooh. make any sense. I think if you keep it, then you have to have women register. Yeah. But I'm not convinced you need to keep it. So we are in a situation right now, it sounds like, like when you look at the United States before the First World War and then the U.S. enters. And of course, 1916, they had started, um, you know, some some uh, kind of mobilization acts and whatnot. But everyone's like, oh, the United States was woefully unprepared for mobilization in 1917. So if we were right now to get into that kind of situation 50 years from now people would once again say the united states was woefully unprepared for mobilizing a mass army in 2022 yes okay i think that's easy to say well brian i think she has done an amazing job for us today she served her time yep. I, think, I think she has earned the right to uh participate in rapid fire yep oh goody She's got books. She's got books there. She's in her office. Yeah. So she might be able to, to cheat a little bit if she needs to. Yeah. And that's okay. Uh, Amy, if you know this drill, we're going to ask you 10 questions. Uh, Brian will ask a couple. I'll ask a couple. Please understand that we will comment and uh, perhaps judge as you go along, as is our right, because it's our show. Sure. You can do what you want. <laughs> and we do. <laughs> It's not like my wife. Jennifer's always like, well, you know, you can do whatever you want. And I'm like, that is so not true. What is it they say about power corrupting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Brian. All right. So, what are you reading that is not related to history or education? So not related to your fields? Um, I am reading a book called The Witch's Heart by Genevieve Gornacek. It is um, I, I wouldn't have picked it up, but it, uh, she's a local author and I've been in a writing group with her. It's a work of fiction. It um, talks about uh, Norse mythology and, and Loki's Loki's wife and family from her perspective, from the oh, wife's Loki. perspective. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, the amount of Norse mythology that I know is basically limited to Marvel movies. So right. all I know, know is from watching Vikings. <laughs> so yeah. It's really awesome. It's, it's, re- it's a good book. I'm enjoying it a lot. Ragnar. So. <laughs> okay um best work of history that you've recently read or for you you can throw in um you know something on on uh you know pedagogy or, or whatever hmm. i have been reading right now for this new project and so i think i'm reading things that are super useful to me but maybe yeah. not the things that are like everybody would want to read so the book uh, i'm reading right now i'm reading i'm finally reading Left Face by David Courtright, which is about, and Max Watts, which is about unionizing attempts in the military, but it came out in 91. So right. it's not like, <laughs> I don't have a really awesome answer for the, gotcha. that question. Fair enough. Fair. Hey, but you know, one. that's when you're in those new projects, you find that you're reading books that are, are you know, old school. So yep. this is our new favorite question Brian came up with for season two. You get to listen to only one band or singer for the rest of your life. Who is it? I heard this question on a on a previous episode, and I object to this question <laughs> <laughs> because I think about like music. I'll be honest; is not my thing. But your tastes change based on who you are and like what you need yeah, to be listening time. to yeah, right. in yeah. any particular moment. Sure. And so, and then also like artists that you used to love that come out with new stuff that's crap. So like, 
I know. I, you know, why it's so it's such a hard question. So the the way I don't know if I've ever said this on the show, but you know, like what music is the soundtrack of your life? Oh well, that's a totally different question, isn't it? Because it changes. Um, I think the answer to your original question is probably maybe Tom Petty. Okay, that's yeah. good. Yeah, no, that's like it. Yeah, yeah, so. and that's good because you've you know you go through the early Tom Petty stuff. By the time. Yep. You know, you get up into the 90s, Wildflowers and all that. Yep, good I went stuff. to that yeah. concert. It was one of my first concerts. That's classic Americana. Yeah, yeah there that's, you go. That's, that's good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, no, we approve. All right. What are, you, what are you binge watching? Jeremy and I are finally watching Stranger Things 4. Um, we uh, wanted to watch it earlier, but literally, I think we were together in our house for like five nights between mid-May and mid-August. <laughs> So we never got around to it together as we did our, our different, like literally he'd get home from a research trip and I'd leave the next day, like oh. all summer. So, yeah. So um, my 12 year old watched all four seasons this summer and it was great. She loved it, but she was so scared that she would make one of us sit outside the bathroom while she took a shower. Oh, <laughs> okay. So, yeah. <laughs> So, okay. Brian, um, what what are you watching right now? Me? I just finished a show that I don't really recommend. If the question is just what am I watching, I just finished a show called Echoes. And it's about um, uh, two twin sisters who have spent their entire life switching in and out once a year. They'll live each other's lives, for, uh, you know, every year they switch. And that, and that includes swapping husbands. You know, you go from one life to the next. It's not great. I'm not not in telling people to watch it, but I did watch it. So huh. there you go. <laughs> we um, just uh, we just got through, got caught up on season two of Reservoir Dogs. I'm sorry, Reservation Dogs. Reservoir yeah. Dogs. Reservation I, Dogs. And man, I, lo- I love that show. I got to watch that. Just yeah, really, fascinating. Uh, um, I really... will give you a recommendation. I also watched this with my 12-year-old, Lock and Key. The uh, third mm. season of Lock and Key just mm. came out, and it is, it's quite good. We just started uh, Slow Horses, too, on Apple. It is really good. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Really I need to use my Apple subscription, so uh, I, should, I, should, yeah. I should watch that. Okay. See, I mean, how we made this about us? Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. See, we I mean, we're, you know, we're getting good at this. I like taking attention off myself. That's actually a thing. <laughs> so this is going to test how uh, how often you're actually going out in Iowa there. Um, alluvial brewing or torrent brewing? Oh, boy. Well, okay. I'll start by saying I don't like beer. Okay. But they are both excellent because they I, I love the um environment at both. So okay. we, right. we did Jeremy's tenure party at Torrent. That's okay. half the battle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Thumbs up then. Um best neighborhood in Boston. Oh Lordy, I haven't lived there in how many years? It's okay. You still like when you go back there, where do you feel the most comfortable? Well, I mean, I spent my time in, you know, Medford, Somerville, Cambridge. So I mean that's I guess. The nostalgia hits hard in that area. Okay. Yeah. No Southie for you? I did not as a as a <laughs> college student head down there all that often. <laughs> uh my my brother in law um lived in uh, in Slummerville for a while. So I used to uh to to visit him there and he referred to it as Slummerville. So uh Yeah, no longer. Holy moly, no, the gentrification. No, the gentrification Holy is, is is crazy there. Jennifer yeah. lived there for three two or three years when she worked for Little Brown and I can't remember where she lived though. But she liked it, you know, but that was a long time ago. All right. Interesting how you respond to this one. Could you return to teaching high school? 
I think about that question regularly. Um, <laughs> Not surprising. Well, if I get fired, I have to do something. Yes, I could. I don't know if my family could handle me if I had to yeah. do it. Ah, gotcha. Yep. Fair point. Fair I enough. was, yeah, on my own the first time. I have other responsibilities now and I'm not sure they would be good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Related. Should aspiring social studies teachers major in history or education? History. Solidly history. I will, I will argue this one, you know, from the rooftops. Thank um, you. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah. I, I asked that question obviously because of what you do and your knowledge, but I had a, a discussion um, with, I won't say the name, someone who's very high up in these these kinds of things at Georgia Southern. And this person just said to me, oh, absolutely. It should they should be doing content major. They should they should be in history. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> we, we think so, too. Let's make that happen. Um, but it's not that's not the case at Georgia Southern. It they used to be in, that way. When yeah, I first got there, that's it. how it was. Yeah, no, well, you, did, I think... you, you majored in history and then you did a fifth year to get an MAT. And that's where you got the, the education. Yeah, no, I think there's there is some very important stuff happening in pedagogy classes. Um, yeah, but you cannot teach secondary history without having the historical knowledge and skills to be able to do it, and yeah. that is not being taught there. And you have to have both. And you um, need to be exposed to teachers, professors who teach that material. Yeah. And and a handful right? of classes is not going to do the job. It's just not. Yeah. Never mind the capstones and the research and the other things. Yeah. How do you teach research if you don't have never done it? Right, right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to, Bill, I'm going to change question number nine. Um, yeah, it's your prerogative, um, man. Okay. Uh, best Philly. And by that, I mean best Philly cheesesteak. Uh, Just so you know, we leave the pauses in. Yeah, no, I know. I, know. <laughs> I, I haven't lived there since 1996 yes all, but, all but, these qualifiers i know all these yeah. qualifiers but philadelphia oh is a city that has undergone a renaissance since i left i don't know i i it's not like pat sergino's i can say that so you're the you're the second person to say that and basically i can't remember who it was but somebody else from philly said it's basically any little local place exactly yeah, yeah. okay all right and so what yeah. i was going to say ironically is that uh, the place near my mom's house, who she still lives in the general area, is called Boston style pizza. I'm not really sure why, but that's where I get my cheese steaks when I go home. Hey, they're good. That's right. that's, oh, go right. figure. Yeah. All right. Final question. Uh, most important one. Um, in your opinion, and I, I don't know where this is going with you. Um, when it comes to barbecue, is it brisket or pork? Brisket. Okay. Yay. Now, I had finally. two theories. I had two theories there, um, and and you went in uh, the direction I kind of thought you might go. Well, to be to be frank, um, I grew up my I did not grow up in a kosher household, but yeah. I grew up with a mother who did, and yes. so there was never pork on the menu. Yeah, so Absolutely. that is just not ever going to be my go to. Yeah, I knew I knew about your background, and uh, <laughs> I I remember when my wife's uh, grandfather died. And this was in Augusta, Georgia. Um, a wonderful Jewish woman from the neighborhood came with a brisket, and she said, "This is Jewish comfort food." <laughs> um, and uh, I was like, I, "I will always remember that." Best place in Ames when it comes to barbecue. Again, you uh, this this question. I, I mean, one does not come to Ames for barbecue. Well, of course not. But <laughs> my <laughs> my favorite is a place actually in Luther, Iowa, called What You're Smoking. Okay. Oh, I like it. Yeah. So it's got it's 
I really like the environment. It's sort of like in an old garage and they've yeah. got the, the, you know, the, the doors and you can look out on the cornfields. Do they have t-shirts? I'm sure they do. I gotta look them up online. Cause that sounds yeah. like that'd be a great t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. My, my cheapness got the best of me because when I was at Woodstack stack last weekend, they had good t-shirts and I was like, yeah, I should get a t-shirt. And oh, you should like, get a t-shirt. And I was like, oh, but they're 28 bucks. And like, uh, you know, and I didn't. And now I'm like, why didn't you just get the damn t-shirt? <laughs> I will bring you $28 worth of joy, right? Yeah, I know, right. That's how you have to think about it. (laughs) You'll be back. We like wearing t-shirts in class sometimes because the kids look at them, they're like, what is that? Yeah. Who are the Smiths? Right? You know, I mean, (laughs) you have all this negligence in their upbringing that you have to correct. That was great. I, yeah. man, Amy, well done. You you passed this with flying colors. Uh, The brisket thing aside, which I appreciate, but man, I, I, yeah, this was fun. Yeah. Glad I had a good time. Yeah. yeah. We really appreciate your just being open about the issues there with history and stuff at Iowa State, but also, you know, you're just having that re- the reflection on, on secondary ed and, and your experience with that, I think it is it's good for us to hear. Really, you wanted me on so you could get the gossip, right? That, yeah. <laughs> what's happening yeah. here at Iowa State? Oh, we're 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 very calculating <laughs> on who we have on. Well, hey, hey, last question. You you probably have figured this out now. Um, you are living in the uh the kind of the national headquarters of wrestling, right? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, are your sons are they are they getting pulled into that world? Not at all. Okay, that's that's unfortunate. You know, Brian wrestled in high school. I did not. But I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you. He was uh, quite accomplished. I was. I was okay, but uh, I was going to ask you. Did you know? Do you know the the best athlete to ever come out of Iowa State University is Dan Gable, who was a gold medalist, uh, and then went on to coach at Iowa, where he led them to you know more than a dozen um, uh, national championships. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the details. Um, I don't think it was that name. So a student of mine actually just wrote a paper on the Vietnam era here on campus. Yeah. Um, mm. uh, so uh, Iowa State had had Visha for a number of years, um, which was like this huge celebration. It was campus and it brought in people from all over the place. And they canceled it a number of years ago just before I got here because it led to a lot of rioting. But it turns out that Visha weekend in 1970 was the same weekend as Kent State. Oh, or, wow. Okay. Or I'm sorry, Visha followed the week of Kent State. And so all of that protesting they managed to pull it off, but my student is writing a paper on Visha in this moment in 1970. And there was also a racial incident at a bar in town that involved the wrestling team. And I'm trying to remember, I don't- Gable, I, I, Gable would have been gone by then because yeah. he was in the Munich Olympics. Okay. Um, yeah. But there were wrestlers who were really well-known who were involved in this racial bar fight, this racially motivated bar fight. Um, huh. So, I, I love that. That's such a great idea to have the, the most success I think we've had. I, I can speak for myself, but I think Brian, too, because he directs a lot of honors theses, is when students do local stuff yeah, and get into like our like our special collections at Georgia Southern and, and do work like that. That's where it's at. I, I just that's the best training. Uh, best no, I experience. have to say, I'm so excited. I just need to say this because this student. So this started out of like a, a class that we offer, like our intro to research class, and everybody had to write a paper out of the archives. And the student's paper was awesome. So we expanded it as part of an independent study last semester. So it's now twice as long. It's cool. really close to being able to submit for publication. Oh, but what awesome. makes me awesome, like extra specially excited is that he's also a teacher ed student. 
And so he's going to go on and teach and he's going to see you what you can yeah. accomplish and how you can do it. And, and like, please you know, like teach his students too. Yeah. You know, so that's great. There, that's great. There are ways we can impact <laughs> the future <laughs> and, and help subvert this cycle. And like, that's actually why I got involved with Beth with the site with Beth Bailey and teaching military yeah. history.com yeah. and the K-12 yeah. editor because we right. need to do that. Even us military historians. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. let me say, you know, I think military historians, for better or for worse, for the same reason that, you know, veterans aren't questioned in the same way civilians are questioned in our society. Military historians are not questioned in the same way certain you know, historians out of certain other fields are questioned and i think yeah. we we have the ability to lean on that you know it oh, may not be point. right yeah. but we yeah. have the ability to lean on it if you've got stuff for us teaching militaryhistory.com definitely okay. contact me folks. yes you should check it out if you're putting together a course or anything like that there's a lot of great <laughs> great stuff there great resources yeah. i mean i really, really appreciate your time and everything this yeah is really, thank you this was super i i feel as, as dark as we went in a couple of places, I, I feel light and uplifted. And Brian, I'm, I might keep keep doing this, thing, doing the, the teaching thing for another few years. Yeah, it's important. I might, I might stick with it. It's important. If we don't do it, someone else will. And who knows? They'll be very good at it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so thanks, Amy. All right. Thanks, guys. It thanks, was really Amy. good to talk to you. <laughs> this right. was fun. Thanks so much. Military Historians Are People Too is produced, written, and hosted by Brian Feltman and Bill Allison. Music is written and performed by Bill Allison, who clearly is not B.J. Lederman. Military Historians Are People Too is hosted on Anchor by Spotify. Check back soon for new episodes. Thanks for listening.